0: Welcome to the L&T Chat Show, and today I'm pleased to say my guest is Yannis Glenovus. Uh, Yanis, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yep, hi. I'm so happy to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I am primarily at the University of Westminster in the law school. I also teach at the Open University and the University of London, and I have been doing a variety of things over the years, predominantly online, which is, you know, what everybody does these days, I guess. And what kind of subjects do you teach? Uh, All the boring stuff. So business law, company law, uh, contract law. Now, if I had to pick one for uh, excitement, I would say contract. Um, So a lot of our first year students tend to be a little bit more lively. Uh, They tend to lose their will to live as they're progressing through their LLD by the time they get to company at the end. But there you go. So I'm more of the business direction, the sort of business direction of law. I would say. Um, I'm I'm with you.
0: Um, Okay, so uh, today we're going to talk about the use of social media in teaching. And clearly, you know, social media is one of those things that everybody is aware of. I'm guessing that probably most of the people listening to this will be involved in at whatever kind of level. It's one of those things it's impossible to get away from. I need to put my hand up now and say I absolutely hate social media. And I hate everything that it's done to society, but it is impossible to get away from it, and we need to acknowledge that either in our personal lives or indeed um, in in the the teaching realm. And I, I, one of the things I teach is advertising, and a lot of advertising now is looking at um, how advertisers can exploit the various different things um, that are available via social media. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how you first encountered or came across or what sort of motivated you to, to think about social media in terms of its application in teaching?
1: Well, in my general involvement in social media, it, my main hobby is complaining about stuff. So <laughs> the best place where you can complain about stuff is obviously Twitter. Uh, well, before Elon Musk came around and destroyed it, it used to be really, really fun. Though my main avenue for social media interaction uh, was Twitter where I talked about politics, got into arguments with people. Um, I've done very well at this because I got into arguments with some really important and famous people and I was even kind of heckled in the newspapers for it. That was back in Greece at the time of the, of all the financial crisis in 2015. Um, But the The teaching side of interaction with social media came a little bit later and of course it came as an after effect of the pandemic because when we all got locked in and we all got told turn your teaching content into something we can deliver to the students remotely I started working my way through everything I had uh, various bits of video lots of audio recordings of a variety of lectures and I thought hang on a second I'm sat here on hours and hours and hours of content. So much content that I've recorded and kept over, you know, my entire career that I couldn't possibly inflict upon my current students, but maybe within all of this, there is some value to be had if I make it available to the wider public. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, hang on, is this guy saying that he's giving free university content to everybody else and what about copyright and all the rest of it? Hopefully, we don't have any IP lawyers in the audience.
0: Okay, fingers crossed.
1: (laughs) So, my uh, maybe there's something to be said about this, but I'm fairly confident that I had copyright to all the stuff that I was using, but also... Giving something of value to the wider audience is important regardless of all these kind of really legal, technical difficulties. And part of what we do at the university is knowledge exchange and bringing something of value to the public around us. So one way of doing this is to curate the content we have and then try and make it available through social media to a wider public. So I started doing this, started putting together the things I had, uh, created a couple of YouTube channels as an outlet for this and started giving things out to the world. And I had great deal of fun doing it. And hopefully it has given some value to the people on the other end listening to all of this.
0: So was there a particular reason for because obviously uh, Twitter is primarily a text based medium. Uh, we're participating at the moment in a, in a podcast, which is uh, clearly going to be audio based. Um, and YouTube is video based. So, you, you you know, you've got the benefit of both. Was there a particular reason for uh, focusing on YouTube? And did you take a particular approach? Is it is it like a talking heads thing? So it's the equivalent of, of watching a recorded lecture? Or have you done other things with that?
1: I started doing mini lectures of my contract law material because this is, I thought this was something safe for me because I'm not teaching contract at the University of Westminster at the moment. Uh, These are material that I had accumulated for myself from kind of a decade earlier. So I thought there's not going to be anybody from management telling me I shouldn't give this free. Um, And I was totally in control of it, but it was mini lectures. And when you're saying things like case names, statutory references, and all the rest, unless you have a visual way to accompany this, it will be very difficult to deliver it to the audience in a purely audio format. So what I did, I put together some nice looking slides um, that had a bit of animation, a bit of movement, but also the textual information that one needed to have. And then had my uh, audio backing to this, which made for 10-15 minute uh, clips that then I uploaded as individual videos. So I did first a series of all of this uh, talking about the key issues in contract law that an undergraduate law student might need to know and then I spread onwards from that one. Okay,
0: do you ever actually do any uh, talking pieces? So, uh, you know, as we're actually doing now because we're recording this on Teams, clearly we can we can see each other.
1: Yes, I did a lot of those. So the the initial set of resources was um, audio of slides, but then I did some video of me talking straight to camera, um, either with some additional uh, video elements, uh, some animations and things like this. I've done some that are purely B-roll and animations with the audio. I've tried a variety of formats. I do a lot of live streaming as well on YouTube, uh, which is just me speaking to camera. Um I've all these different formats can be helpful because they can appeal to different audiences or they're more suitable for the delivery of different types of teaching content, depending mm. on the atmosphere you're trying to create. This is just I noticed uh, and I mentioned before
0: we started recording that I've been using flip lectures for quite a long time. So the idea of. Um, having recorded lectures is, is something that I was quite familiar and comfortable with. But one of the changes that I made during the pandemic was that I started embedding um, short pieces, which I had stored on on YouTube, though I am I'm by no means somebody who's comfortable with that as a, a particular format, but did that so that I could actually embed within the slides that I was using a video of me talking. But that was in part so that students could see me um, which obviously they would do in a, in a lecture, and not just the the slides and the sound. Um, so this was made uh, available externally. Um, what
1: kind of audience do you get? What what kind of responses have you had? The the response is very different depending on the audience. And I think this is going to be helpful to understand for the people listening to this presentation, because academics always assume that they have a captured audience, but this is not necessarily the case. And as we've discovered from the types of disengagement that we get from our own students, either because they might not turn up for class or they turn up for class and they play with their phones instead of listening to us, keeping the attention of the audience should not be taken for granted. If you are delivering content to a wide audience that is not your own, then you need to work even harder in maintaining their attention. Uh, One of the great things about YouTube is that it gives you exceptional analytics. So you can actually track the behavior of the audience. Now, how does the audience react to all of this content? For some stuff, it reacts very, very well. For some stuff, it just doesn't want to be engaged at all. In a very weird way, the videos that were intended for an internal audience have performed less well than the videos that are directed to the general public. Because also I've got a series of pre-recorded lectures that I make available to my own students as part of my normal contracted teaching here at the university. These ones, even though I believe they're at at a good uh, spec, they perform much less well than anything else. So why is it that a resource that is, say, the same content explaining a legal concept will get very little interaction if you make it available through the VLE to your own students, but will get thousands of views if you put it out there for the general public? I don't think it's an issue of me having a hundred students in here and there being a hundred billion people out there. I think the difference is the expectation of the audience. The audience in here came to study on campus and did not sign on for pre-recorded lectures. And I think there's a very significant inhibition that comes from that. Somebody who's just trolling through pages on YouTube or arrived at a video because they Googled something, they get exactly what they're looking for. So they're more likely to want to watch it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That that if, if you force me and i'm doing bunny ears uh, around that uh to have to listen to something i'm possibly less inclined to listen to it um you know even if it's absolutely relevant to the thing that i've signed up for then something i uh potentially come across because i, I i'm i'm interested in that or i've become interested in that or or simply you know uh, in the way that youtube works it, it might be that um, it comes up as a suggested thing because uh, somebody's looked at something else one of the things I wanted to ask um, is: the the things that you post are they available? Do they have uh, the comments enabled? Then, so do you do you are, do you have the opportunity to interact
1: sort of directly with the audience they can leave comments for you and you can respond to those? Yes, the whole point is engaging uh, interaction, and it's a way to connect both with the students that we have as our day students, but connect with them through social media that they might feel more comfortable with, for example, Uh, and also to interact with the wider public to kind of both get ideas as to how things are going to develop my own practice and also to be able to support them further in what what they're trying to do. So the comments are always open. Uh, People have got the opportunity to like and dislike. I actually do encourage them in every video to kind of hit the like button or uh, to go down into the comments and tell me what they think. And in order to get deeper into this, I utilize the community um, facility that's available on YouTube that you can have a more intense interaction. And I also run I also run a Facebook group um, where uh, students can sign on and then we can have deeper discussions about things they can discuss with each other as well.
0: Okay, so uh, that's uh, my my hesitation is because that's thrown up quite a lot of questions there. So um, I'll start with the the first one because I I had thought of this before. Have you changed anything in terms of either the content or the delivery? based on feedback that you've had, uh, either from your own students or from from people uh, just coming across
1: the YouTube channel? Yes, I absolutely have. Uh, I think it has made me a much, much better teacher and much more effective at my teaching um, to have this experience of getting feedback in real time from everybody out there. One of the main takeaways from this experience is that nobody in their right minds will sit through a 45 minute recording of a lecture. (laughs) <laughs> but yeah. Furthermore, if it's a panopto lecture that has not been uh, edited in any way that goes on for an hour and twenty, then definitely nobody sane is going to sit through that one. Um, so, do you have a recommendation then for? Because uh, one of the things that you know
0: we were asked to think about during the pandemic, not everybody did it. Um, I, I thought it was a brilliant opportunity, but we did this thing called chunking. So basically. The idea was that no lecture should be more than 15 or 20 minutes long. So if you had a standard hour lecture, you'd simply divide it into three parts. Is, is that what you do? Or do you find there's an optimum uh, amount of time to engage people? Yeah, that's absolutely it. Uh,
1: no pre-recorded lecture uh, should be more than 15 to 20 minutes. People lose concentration. They lose the will to live. And if you got decent analytics, you can actually see the drop in uh, at in attendance for that lecture if you hit the 10, 12-minute mark. The problem that we've had is that the university considers that we're contractually obligated to deliver an hour lecture. This meant that the majority of my colleagues interpreted this to mean do recordings that go on for an hour. What we should be doing instead is break down, if we have to give them an hour, that's perfectly fine, but we have to break this down into smaller segments that are, of value in themselves, and they're actually digestible and capable of being, you know, engaged with within a shorter time frame. And the, the second of
0: many questions that occur to me is. Um, one of the things about about doing lectures, because although I, I have to do them now, the University, when we came back um, to teaching face to face, decided he wanted to impose some quite strict rules on. Um, uh, the delivery that the students were getting in order that there was a high degree of consistency so i am doing lectures now some of those lectures are two hours long um it, it, you know with the best will in the world i think i don't think it's a particularly good way of delivering any kind of information so i'm trying to make them as as interesting as interactive and and to be honest as performative as possible in order to keep their attention and one of the things we can do there is obviously pause and interact using um, you know, some kind of polling system, or a, a, just a Q and A, where I can give them an opportunity to talk to one another. Clearly, that's that's not specifically something that you can do with a recorded lecture. But if it's shorter, that's easier. Um, does that lecture material then say uh, what you should do next, or here's a question to think about, or or is it just pure information giving?
1: The the pre-recorded lectures that are on YouTube are, are short by design, but they always feed into another piece of content that the student can go to that is either going to reinforce the information or get them to watch something else that might be of value to them that is somehow related. Uh, the lectures that are, de- that are aimed for the students who are having other classes, they're meant to be reinforced by the physical seminars we're having afterwards yeah. so there isn't there isn't a really built-in follow-on to an additional pre-recorded lecture within those because the expectation is I'm going to see those students shortly after face-to-face in a tutorial or a seminar or something and do you get I mean, I mean clearly that's you know students giving you some feedback
0: have you had uh, any interesting comments from people who clearly weren't students of yours
1: that, that came across the YouTube videos? the 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 people externally give more positive feedback than my own students in here. <laughs> And is that about delivery content or something something else? Uh, it, I, I think it comes down to expectation. The, the campus-based students, they feel resentful that they've been offloaded uh, a lecture that is pre-recorded. It gives them the feeling that we don't want to do our jobs and actually be yeah. present in a lecture theatre. Now, the people externally, I get consistently uh, decent feedback from them because they're saying, it helped them understand something or it it offered a summary of something they would have struggled to gather the material for if they were just looking around on their own. Um, And of course, it depends on the, because I do a lot of different things with varied audiences, the experience is different depending on what the audience is, is going on for. But again, I have to come back to the issue of expectation. We seem to have forced a degree of dematerialized teaching on campus-based students that were recruited on the basis of the physical experience. Yeah, And we are yet to successfully navigate this divide.
0: And you mentioned that there is a a link into a a Facebook group. How how does that opposite? I've had some experience before as part of uh, an induction process of running a a Facebook group, uh, so a closed group, Um, for uh, students joining a a business school. So it's about 150 students altogether, And and the idea was that they could join the Facebook group before they arrived for their formal induction. So they could actually speak to other students doing the same courses or staying in the same uh, place. And they had access to uh, a member of staff, which was me, um, who could then answer any particular questions they have or point them in the direction of of, um, where that information would be available. I have to say, it seems to me, from the limited knowledge that I have, that those kinds of opportunities haven't really been taken on board by universities. Maybe YouTube, because, you know, you get TED Talks and things on there. But I think other social media is often looked at somewhat suspiciously uh, by universities who like to keep everything sort of internal. So, a VLE and, you know, a student email address and stuff. So, Can can you just tell us a little bit about how you use Facebook and and what happens there?
1: There are terrible terrible privacy concerns uh, and data security concerns about using things like Facebook for student interaction. That's why the majority of universities insist on some sort of unpleasant discussion forum that runs through the VLE that nobody wants to use. An -hmm. example of this is the Open University, uh, where we've been using um, proprietary discussion forums as the main type of interaction between the students and the student and the teacher for years, and everybody hates them and nobody wants to use them. So you uh, don't have the type of lively social media style interaction within things that are inside the VLE. You cannot, however, ask your own students to join Facebook in order to get teaching content that you're supposed to be delivering uh, through the university systems. So I've used Facebook in a different way. This is not particularly directed to my own students. It is open to everybody. It is open to everybody that I've ever interacted in any way or anybody who comes across any of my social media channels. And it's a place for me to, to... curate and deliver information, giving them the opportunity to interact if they want to, either with their names or anonymously at the time and nature of their choosing, but there is no imposition, there is no expectation. It is effectively a channel that I control to post material um, that I think is helpful and for people to participate whenever uh, they want in whichever way they feel. The Facebook group at the moment has got 1,700 members on it. Uh, wow. Not all of them are real people. Some of them must be bots uh, or you know duplicate accounts or perhaps accounts mm. not used. Um, but it is an avenue for me to offer some more on-hand support if necessary, and I don't mind if these people are my own students or not. What matters is that somebody has an interest in a particular area, and then they can get some help from somebody, um, and that is valuable to me. It gives me the impression that I'm doing something useful, Um, And it also gives me an environment I control that I can actually place this material that I like. Um, The focus of this particular Facebook lately has moved to SQE support because there are a lot of independent candidates for the SQE and they're struggling to find information or to support each other. So I thought if I push the Facebook group into that direction, it can be a focal point for communication for those students and and give them a sense of community um, out there in social media. Mm. Well,
0: one of the other things that I've I've noticed is um, uh, number one, we we do have uh, uh, a lot of students who are uh, not necessarily disengaging, but have difficulty in engaging either because they're commuter students or because they're having to effectively work full time or they have some other uh, caring responsibilities. And I think that allied to the fact that uh, when we think about how we communicate with students or rather how students communicate. Um, I have seen over the twenty seven years I've been doing this uh, a move from uh, where students, even having a mobile phone was relatively unusual to the point where pretty much, I'm gonna say all my students have really quite good smartphones with lots of capability that are almost permanently in their hands via which they explore so much of the world, and not just through social media, but social media does have a big impact. And I'm thinking that if we want to be relevant to students from their perspective in terms of our communication, then surely it makes sense to engage with them somehow through social media. And it's one of the reasons why I said before I started because I, I kind of have two positions on this. You know, I hate social media, I hate everything it does to us and the attention economy and all of that stuff. But, but putting that to one side, um, you know, if I post stuff in the VLE, the student is required to go to the VLE to see that I've posted something or they will get a notification but the notification comes in email and if you talk to our students they don't use email and and in, in some cases that's we don't use email because we get sent so much email and most of it isn't particularly relevant or interesting to us so we just don't bother and you're thinking well you know that way lots of communication is lost whereas I know myself not specifically because of running. Uh, the Facebook group but certainly other groups that I have been involved with so whether that's a sports group a theatre group or something else if you have a WhatsApp group WhatsApp clicks up on my phone it tells me on my phone there's a notification and I am h- much more likely to go into that I'm much more likely to watch conversations that are happening between other people and it struck me that um, either using something like WhatsApp um, which clearly re- uh, requires I think I might change this last time I sort of had to worry about it um the interaction via a, a telephone number so you do have that kind of physical contact or even something uh like more recent like discord where there isn't the same kind of requirement to have and people can effectively be anonymous on it but it's still something that's on their phone so it's an app on their phone and they're getting notifications and they can see the notifications and they can follow other people's discussions and they can be part of a group that they can either engage with or not engage with that they can still see the things that are going on so do you think We should be embracing social media more, not just within teaching, but within sort of higher education
1: uh, across the board. We should be more concerned about the user experience. And part of the user experience has to do with multi-platform functionality. Our lectures that are put on the VLE are designed to buy words by somebody on a laptop. This isn't always the case and this isn't always possible. The good thing about having something hosted on YouTube is that the student can watch it on the laptop. They can watch it on their phone, on the way to the uni or on the way to work. They can use it on the TV in the evening if they feel like it and if they can inflict this on the rest of their family. But having one resource that you can access with anything that has a screen inside and outside the house is important. Having a communication pathway or a communication channel that will work seamlessly through devices is also very important. And this is the way we live today. I think one of the key problems that we've got is that we're restricting people to things that are behind the firewall or or within a VLE that really makes the multi-device functionality super problematic. And we lose people that way because the students want this to be integrated into their daily experience, but our systems are not really that modern. So if we find a way to use social media in a flexible and safe way, then we can take advantage of the multi-platform functionality, of the notification capability, of the, the seamless flow of information through a variety of devices and spaces that then makes us more present and makes our content more accessible to our students. Do you? Again, I'm I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate for the moment
0: uh, because I, I can sle- clearly see the benefits of, of what we're talking about, um, but I am aware of uh, some of the arguments that other people might put forward. So, so one of them is to do with um, uh, I'm not sure of the best way to describe this. So, an inequality in access uh amongst students that might be a hardware issue but uh, it may be more likely to be a, a software issue so for example i am uh led to believe that um, chinese students in china at least uh, either can't access or their access to youtube is restricted so
1: do you ever encounter those kinds of problems if you do is, is there a workaround for that Yes, the workaround for when we're delivering content to international students that are not on location, so they might be in a country where where they're subject to restrictions, we can have things uploaded onto platforms that are accessible to everybody, but we can also have an Um, something that can be downloaded that rests within university systems. Mm -hmm. This is problematic in terms of capability of hardware because if you need to download a one gigabyte worth uh, lecture um, through an internet connection, through a device and then watch it, many people will struggle with this. But Mm -hmm. if um, if they cannot use social media channels because of firewalls in their country and restrictions, then that's the way to do it. In terms of the capability of technology you mentioned already that everybody seems to have very capable devices Um, so i think the problem is not in a sort of class divide or ability to purchase divide because now even the cheaper devices contain functionality that allows access to all of this stuff Uh, and everybody has some sort of internet connection that now is good enough for your average streaming uh, experience Mm. Uh, We certainly need to be concerned about people in countries that certain things are blocked for them. But otherwise, we shouldn't really be concerned about purchasing power and the sort of wealth inequality and how this affects content through social media, because I think that barrier now is fairly low. Mm. Now, the other thing that I wanted to ask, uh, again, thinking about some
0: of the comments, some of the sort of barriers that I've heard people expressed before. You mentioned uh, Twitter previously and I'll, I'll give you an example of it. I, I like technology. It's just that I'm, you know, technology ch- has changed so rapidly in, in my lifetime that I struggle often to keep up. So the other day I was using Twitter and I actually wanted to send a personal message to somebody else on Twitter. And to be honest, after about 10 minutes, I just, I, I gave up and I was aware of the fact that I could have just, you know, put out a general message and tagged the person in it, um, and I assume that, therefore, it would have uh, it would have been notified to them and then been able to see the comment. And it wasn't anything, you know, that I would have minded necessarily being public. But one of the the perceptions of social media is that it is very easy for things to end up in the public domain that perhaps shouldn't be in the public domain. So uh, are there ways of safeguarding against that or should we just go, well, you know, that's life, that's what happens. And all you can really do is educate the students into think before you post.
1: Are you the sort of person that puts um, a sticker on top of their camera because you're worried that the Chinese hiker yeah. might be looking oh. at you? You're marking.
0: Um, no, but then I'm also the kind of person who only has on my on my personal computer. I'm not talking about the the work one now. AVG because it's free. Um, and to be honest, I number one, I don't I don't as far as I'm aware, I don't keep anything on my laptop that would be particularly useful for to a hacker. Um, and equally, I am one small person in a billion, you know, well, more than billion uh, universe of independent devices. And I guess there is always uh, that flaw. But I'm guessing that, you know, the, the people that really matter are going to be extorting monies in different ways. And also almost certainly from much bigger companies, it, you look at. You know, the advent of gdpr just means that we all have to click on accept every time we open something now has it made the world more secure no you know big <laughs> firms are still being hacked by you know individuals and organizations faced in various different parts of the world but because they have some kind of power or or finance uh, that that makes it worthwhile
1: the reason I asked you is that everybody assumes they're either being watched or something is hacked or something is going to leak or they're going to be subject to a data breach. So I think it is safer if you assume everything is gonna make its way to a public domain sooner or later. There is no such thing as a private conversation. The conversations that we have in the discussion forums through the VLE, a student can take a screenshot and then share it on social media. So I think the universities are usually overtly concerned about these things and they're saying, oh no, we couldn't possibly have open discussions on Facebook that everybody can see because they're being naive. Everything that might be of value to an external audience, if it's met by somebody who's operating in bad faith, will make its way out in a public uh, space. So I think we need to be careful, of course, and we cannot start kind of pre-uploading our exam papers on Facebook, um, but we should also be more at ease So be careful on the one hand, but not obsess about it on the other um, and feel better about making some of our product and our discussions available in a public domain. And if we're talking about copyright issues, because a lot of my colleagues are concerned about giving stuff that people have paid for, in theory, through their tuition fees, giving them for free to the wider public, we shouldn't be concerned about this. Our aim is education. A knowledge exchange is part of our policy aim. So giving something that somebody has paid for in some way and giving a version of it available to the wider public is not a problem. The person who paid for it will also get assessed on it, will get a certificate. They will get full value for the money that they paid. At the same time, the person who didn't pay might get some knowledge and something that helps them in their personal development. So I think everybody wins.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, actually. Uh, I, I um, had an interaction with students using uh, Padlet, so uh, the interactions are anonymized, and so that's the time and uh, encourage the students to engage, um, and actually had a lot of very, almost surprisingly, uh, positive comments about stuff. But one person, and I, I assume partly because, you know, making things anonymous and this is one of the things that's on my list of reasons why I hate social media. If you make things anonymous, then people are do sometimes feel emboldened, or say sometimes often feel emboldened to say things that they just would not say to your face, or they would not say uh, in a public forum if if they were identifiable. And they actually said, "I could have learned all of this off of YouTube." And I thought, to a similar extent, what you've just said. Yeah, you probably could. You know, I've, I, I I have often said. Um, quite happily to both colleagues and students if you want to learn marketing you go here's a marketing textbook read that from cover to cover you'll know marketing but actually you don't want to read the book from cover to cover there will be things in it that you don't understand you will want more practical explanations of stuff you will want to have a conversation about a particular topic you will want other examples to be given you maybe want to have the opportunity to practice something so Content in itself, in and of itself, is is not enough. Um, but I was intrigued by something that you said earlier, because you said you use animation in your YouTube as well. Yeah. Is that because there used to be a couple of uh, quite nice little animation features part of YouTube, but they either then took them away or they made them things that you had to pay for. Is there particular, are there particular animation tools that you use?
1: Yeah, I use, uh, I've got access to a variety of software. I use Powtoon to make some of the animations. uh, Right. Is that free or do you you pay for that? Uh, We have a license for that, the university-based license. Um, And the license is sufficient for the use of this for educational purposes. Uh, You can buy an extended license if you want to use it for commercial purposes as well. But... um, If you want to use uh, visuals or animations, now the capabilities of AI are in that field they're fantastic so you could right. actually produce quite elaborate original animations that you can include in your uh, in your videos even with something simple like powerpoint you can create a great deal of animation that can actually enhance um, a video presentation if your slides are getting a little bit slow or a little bit boring or repetitive you can just have a bird fly through them on occasion and you can do this on powerpoint
0: uh, okay um, yeah, I mean, the AI one is a, an interesting one, Sa- sadly, that's a, a separate conversation that will that will take a long time. Um, we've covered a lot of stuff today and it, and it feels like there's probably a lot more to cover. Uh, I am conscious of the time, though. So for the moment, uh, at least, Yanis, thank you so much for your time today. It does sound really interesting and, and I'm certainly going to hunt you down on YouTube and have a look at a few of the videos. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you. Thank you.